The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Maybe seated. We're now going to have scripture read by Dan Penner. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhal and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that the father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream when he told to his brothers they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheath rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to my bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brother, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamers, they said to each other. Come, now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured them. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said, said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brother, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them to down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brother pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben turned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back <clears throat> to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a coat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to his father and said, 
We found this. Examine to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Good morning, my name is Doug Friesen. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church, and it's my honor to share the Word of God with you this morning. And I'm so thankful that Dan Penner took the time to read for us Genesis 37. I hope that as we go through this next leg of Genesis, which is all about the story of Joseph, that we will read things with fresh eyes and not just allow familiarity to let us say, oh, I know that story already, but always come to the Word of God, expecting to hear things new and to have new insights. And so I'm glad he took the time to read that for us. And I want to encourage you that if you feel that's a ministry you could do, that you wouldn't mind scripture reading at home so we could watch it on video, let the church office know. And over the coming months, we can let you know when there would be a need for you to do that. We'd really appreciate it. So... As I said, we're entering into the last leg of Genesis. There's 14 chapters that primarily focus on the life of Joseph. But what we need to remember is that this is still a story of Jacob's family. It's a story for the whole family of Jacob. And Joseph is a key character, but he's not the only one. And there's lots of things that God is doing behind the scenes. We hear right away in Genesis 37.1 that we find Jacob in the land that his fathers had sojourned in, that they had traveled in, and he settles there in Canaan. And then we read this in verse 2. Here are the generations of Jacob. And then it says, Joseph being 17 years old. This is a, actually a very intriguing way to start this chapter, and it only becomes so if you remember what we just heard in Genesis 36. Genesis 36 is all about the descendants of Esau. So if you remember, we have uh, Esau and Jacob. They were the brothers. Esau gave away his birthright, so everything was going to happen through Jacob. And now we have one chapter, chapter 36, that gives like, almost like a genealogy of things that's happening. It might not be the most exciting chapter to read until you realize that the reason it's there is to help us realize that Esau had five sons, he had 27 chiefs in that, in that family unit, and he had eight people who became kings. Wow, if that's what it's like for Esau, who isn't the avenue of the chosen promise of God, what's it going to be like for Jacob? I wonder how great that's going to be. And the first thing we read is Joseph being 17 years old. I think we're right away reminded that greatness in God's eyes is much different than from a human standpoint. We get caught up in a lot of things, and God says, I look at the heart of someone, and I'm the one who ultimately has the plan. So we're going to learn a little bit more of what God had intended through the life of Joseph. Over the whole summer, we're going to be focusing on Jesus and the life of Joseph. So the thing that we learn off right away in this chapter is that Joseph is a favored son. We're told that he is a favored son because he's the son of Jacob's old age. We also know that he's the firstborn of Rachel, 
the woman that Jacob really loved. If he had had his way, he would have married Rachel only, but he got tricked and he married other people, but Joseph is the first son of Rachel. So for those reasons, we can infer that he was favored. And that favor is shown by him being given a, a coat, which we are often told is a coat of many colors. That's the very common way of talking about it. But really, it would be more accurate to describe it as a, a long robe with long sleeves. It may have been ornate, it may have had some color, but it was actually the length of the robe that was significant. Everybody in this age wore a robe, but most of their robes for the men were short sleeve at most, maybe even right to their shoulder, and might have gone down to their knees. And that was the clothes that the common worker the co uh, would wear, and it served very practical purposes day in, day out. So now we see Jacob give Joseph this long robe, and this long robe was more like saying, you're, you're kind of business class. You're like the manager. You're, you're going to be the future leader of this family. Now remember, Joseph has nine other brothers. And by giving him this, it's sort of like, I'm going to be giving you all the privileges of the firstborn. Your other nine brothers, they're not receiving it. That's sort of the message that would have been received by the whole family. And so... A reasonable question for us to ask is, was it wrong for Jacob to favor Joseph? Was it wrong for Jacob to favor Joseph? It's pretty easy to think, yeah, it would be, right? Like, and he should have known that because he experienced the damage of favoritism in the family. He saw that with, between he and his brother, the relationship and how their parents kind of favored one over the other. Of course that's damaging. Of course the favoritism in that way is not good. But it's interesting that in this narrative, there's no value judgment made on what Jacob did. It's just saying that it happened. And remember how we talked about how God isn't constrained by evil. He can use evil circumstances to make good things happen. So even if what Jacob did was technically unwise, God used it to show that Joseph was favored and something special was going to happen through him. And we can get further evidence of this by the dreams that Joseph had. The next verses talk about two dreams that Joseph received. The first dream was about him being in the, in the farmer's field and his sheaf was standing up tall and straight and the sheaves of his brothers came and bowed down to him. And then he received another dream. And in this dream, it was the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him. And, and he received these dreams. I hope you've understood or heard me say, receive these dreams. He did not aspire for these things to happen. He wasn't self-aggrandizing himself, saying, this is what will be. He received these dreams, and then he shared them with his brothers. Maybe it wasn't wisely. The Bible doesn't actually say if he said it pridefully or not. He might have been just overly excited. Look what God showed me. The Bible doesn't make comment on that, but it does make it very clear that these dreams are from God, especially as we go throughout the rest of Genesis. We see these dreams fulfilled, and we know they're from God. So God is, one of the things we need to take away from this is that whatever happens next in Joseph's life, God wants us to know that God is the hero. It has nothing to do with Joseph being the hero. God is the one that will make the good things happen in Joseph's life. 
So we can ask the question, was it wrong for God to favor Joseph? Because he was definitely favored. There's no question about that. Jacob favored him. God favored him. Let's go 2,000 centuries or so into the future, and we remember that God has another favored son. In Mark, we read when, he was, when Jesus was being baptized, he said, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. In John 3.35, it says, this is my son, and I give all things to him. Jesus was favored by God. So was it wrong for God to favor his son Jesus? I think we'd say no. If you're saying yes, I think I'm very glad we're apart from each other. There's a thunderstorm tomorrow, lightning comes. I'd be very careful that you say, yes, God made a mistake by favoring his son. Did he favor, did, was it wrong for him to favor Abraham? Was it wrong for him to favor Isaac? Was it wrong to favor Jacob? What about Moses? What about David? What about Mary, the mother of Jesus? Was that type of favoritism wrong? I think we need to ask ourselves, what purpose does God's favor serve? When he favors someone, when we read that in scripture, it's different than how we probably think about it in our day-to-day -day lives. When it says God favors someone, what does it serve? And in Genesis especially, it serves to advance the promise that he made to Abraham that he would receive a land, a promised land, that he would have descendants as many as stars in the sky and sand on the seashore, that eventually through him there would be a savior who would bless all nations. When God favors someone, it was to make sure that his promise, his covenant, was actually taking steps forward. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says this, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. When God favors someone, it's not because that person is all that. It's that because God says, through your life, I'm going to advance my purpose so that salvation can be offered to all people. And that's why Joseph was favored. Now, that might not be the intent of how Jacob favored him, but that's God's intent. Salvation is going to be brought through part of your story here. You're going to advance the narrative of the promise to Abraham. So when that happens and people are favored, sometimes people misunderstand what's happening and sometimes there's really bad emotions that follow and Joseph's brothers definitely hated him. It is so clear. What we need to remember is Joseph's brothers weren't like I don't know, really respectable people from what we've been told so far. Do you remember that Reuben, the oldest son, the firstborn, he slept with his father's concubine in defiance? Well, that's lose birthright right there. And then the other sons, remember what they did to Shechem when we read in Genesis 34? They went to Shechem because their daughter, their sister was evilly, uh, was treated very evil. She was raped by the prince of Shechem. Instead of resolving that in a, in a godly way and dealing with it because it needed to be dealt with, they went and they murdered all the men of that city. And then all the brothers came and they took the women and the children and all the goods and they plundered Shechem. This is the heritage of Jacob's nine sons. Not the huggy kind of people. 
you know, warm, feely. They didn't get that from them. And now we find out that, well, they really hated their brother. And the first thing that we heard of is that they knew that Jacob favored him more than all the other brothers combined. And it said that they couldn't even speak pleasantly with him or peacefully with him. Like just seeing him brought up these feelings of resentment. And then when Joseph shares the dreams, and and maybe that was unwise, I don't know, but it was providential. He shares these dreams of what God has given them. And it says, he hated him, they hated him even more. They hated him even more. And then he shares the second dream, the one about the, the stars and the moon and the sun bowing down to him. And it doesn't say they hated him more. It said that they became jealous of him. They were jealous of him. There's different definitions, but jealousy is definitely a form of hatred that I think is often built upon insecurity. And I think it's important that we see this progression of hatred, hatred, and then it says the last time, jealous. Because I'm pretty sure they felt insecure. I'm pretty sure that they were wondering, what kind of legacy are we going to have? We were supposed to be receiving uh, like rights of the firstborn. We, we were supposed to be acknowledged. What's our legacy going to be? Are we going to be forgotten? Are, are, are we going to have no place in history of the covenant that God made to Abraham? Are we just being left out of the picture and Joseph is going to be in the spotlight? I'm assuming, I'm reading into that, but I think that's part of the reason why they're jealous, but especially because they realize that not only is Joseph favored by their father Jacob, Joseph is favored by their heavenly father. And how can you get mad at him? Because he hasn't done anything wrong. But they can see, why did God give him these dreams? John 3, verse 20 says this, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I think this is the dynamic that's happening between Joseph's brothers and him. In this situation and throughout Genesis, he's a symbol of light, of goodness. And I think just by being in the presence of his brothers, they just don't like him because their evil deeds are exposed, they're more pronounced, and every time that happens, they get angry. That's usually what happens to us when sin's exposed, unless we humbly acknowledge that we did sin and say, Lord, please forgive me. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you that you already knew I was gonna err and that you've already made a way for it to be possible for my sins to be forgiven. Humble my heart and help me not to sin against you again. If we don't have that posture, then we hate the light when it comes near because it makes us realize we're in the wrong. So the narrative goes on and Jacob tells Joseph to go find his brothers who have moved to Shechem. They're, they're taking care of the flock in Shechem. Shechem's about 50, uh, 50 miles, 90 kilometers away from Hebron. It would be about a four or five day walk for Joseph to go there. He says, go find your brothers and, uh, and give me a report of how they're doing. 
And then what we hear when, when the brothers see him coming is completely different than what we hear about the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? The son says, I want my inheritance now. His father gives it to him. He goes away. He squanders it. He lives foolishly. When he hits the bottom of the barrel, he says, why am I living like this? Even if I lived as a slave with my dad, it would be better than that. And as he's returning home, his father sees him and runs to him, hugs him, and says, welcome home, son. That's a picture of God to his children who stray. And here it's almost the reverse. We've got a bunch of violent, dishonorable men, for the most part, from what we're told, and they see someone coming who represents light, and they say, how can we kill him? What can we do to get rid of this thorn in our side? We hate him. Can you see the parallel of how that also happened in the life of Jesus? Jesus came, the light of the world, did everything right, was good, and the world did not want him. The world despised him. The world said, how can we kill him? And when I say the world, remember that we're included in that statement. It was because of our sin that Jesus died. So let's get back to this narrative and Joseph's brothers see him. It's interesting that in the next verses, the pronoun they is used again and again and again. It doesn't highlight one person over the other as far as how the plan was hatched. It says they saw him. They conspired to kill him. They stripped him of his robe, which was a symbol of the status that he had. They stripped him of it. They threw him into the pit. And then they just had a meal while they waited for him to die. Again, it just said they, they, they. There's not one person who was blamed for it. It's all of them together. Similarly for us with the death of Christ and his, we're all responsible for how Christ died, why he died. He died for our sin. And so we look at this and say, yeah, they're all responsible for that. And they hated Joseph. We can also infer by later on in the, in the chapter that I don't know if they hated their father. It doesn't say that. But they were definitely hurt by their father. I'm sure that they had feelings of hurt from their father. And they treated their father in a deceitful way. They took a goat. They cut it, took the blood, put it all over the, the coat, the long coat, and they, and they brought it to their dad. And they said, do you recognize this? All this, do you recognize this? What do you think happened? And Joseph, of course, went in, or Jacob went into deep grief, saying, it must have been a fierce animal that killed him. There's no way that he survived. He's gone to me, and I'm going to mourn till the day I die. And it says that the, they all, his sons, his daughters, his grandchildren, tried to comfort him, but he wouldn't be comforted. And in this whole situation, again, it doesn't highlight one brother over the other. It says that they did this to their father. And Jacob was distraught, understandably so. Until you think about the providence and sovereignty of God. Now think, I, I wonder, for Joseph, while he was in that pit, and for many of the episodes that you're going to be hearing about in the coming weeks, when God seemed distant, and went distant, and he was really suffering, I wonder if he ever thought back to those dreams and thought, maybe that was just fanciful. 
Maybe that actually wasn't God. Maybe God's not going to do what I understood him to say. Maybe God isn't sovereign after all. You know, the Bible never says a negative word about Joseph. He's the only character in the Old Testament, major character, that doesn't have anything negative said about him. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have had times where he questioned or doubted. That's not wrong to wonder those things and to to struggle and to wrestle with God. It's wrong when you get to the point when you're determined that, or you determine that, no, yeah, because of this, God isn't sovereign. Yeah, because of what happened in my life, God isn't uh, caring to me. He, He won't provide for me. God won't do it. And that's sort of what we see Jacob doing. Jacob was also a person who had dreams from God. The difference for Jacob and for Joseph is he's already on the far end of his life, And he went through those periods of doubting and wondering, are you actually going to make this dream take, uh, this dream that took place, will you make it occur? And he had already seen God's faithfulness. But here, it's sort of like he just says, my son's dead. It's over. My life is over. Why keep living? Quite different than the faith of Abraham who said, even if I killed my son Isaac on the altar, even if I did that, God made a promise so God would raise him from the dead because there's a promise that God made and God doesn't break his promises. When you're in a season of uncertainty, understand that God's fine with you coming with doubts and concerns. Just don't allow your heart to get to a place where you determine that God isn't sovereign or God isn't just, or God isn't good. Bring struggles to him, and then say, Lord, I need your help to trust you in this time. So Joseph was truly hated by his brothers, and and that couldn't have been easy to live with all his life. But as he looked back, I'm sure he saw the sovereignty of God in all these different things. And, And I want to talk a little bit about how Joseph providentially becomes a foreigner, that God was working in all these events. Again, and the events themselves may have happened because of evil choices that people made, wrong choices that people made, but God worked through those choices. That's, again, the beauty of our God, is even when evil happens, he's never saying, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do now? He's always had a plan, and God is never, never treated like someone who you can manipulate, or you can foul up. You can change God's, oh, God made a promise? I'm going to make him break that promise. Can't be done. No matter what evil you see happen. And so um, I, I think it's really interesting that it's just a little side note in Genesis, uh, verses 15 to 17. So Joseph goes, and he's uh, going to look for his brothers in Shechem. First of all, what an interesting place to go. Remember 34, they slaughtered the whole city? So within those years, this city's been repopulated. I wonder what kind of reputation the brothers would have had around that city. Interesting place to go. But the word, the Bible tells us that the brothers had moved from Shechem to a place called Dothan, which is part of the major trade route from the north going south to Egypt, and that was providential as well. But in verses 15 to 17, we read that Joseph is just wandering around looking for his brothers. Remember, he's probably walked for four or five days trying to find them. Now he's just kind of wandering around Shechem. And then the Bible tells us that a man found him and said, what are you looking for? 
And he says, I'm looking for my brothers. And he goes, oh, they went to Dothan. And so Joseph goes to Dothan. What an interesting little piece to put in there. All scriptures inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Why would God put in that little, little episode of a man saying, oh, I know where they are, they're in Dothan? Because God's providential. And he uses people when they're not even aware of it. Actually, in scripture, quite often in Genesis, when it's something like this happens, we later find out that it's an angel. Someone's come to talk. But this doesn't say that. It just says a man came, saw him, told him where to go. And because of that, Joseph goes to Dothan. He meets his brothers and eventually gets taken down to Egypt. That's all providential. Could you imagine if that man hadn't met him? He would have said, can't find my brothers. I guess I'll go home and tell my dad. What I just want to encourage you with this, and not to read too much into it, but I do believe that God has divine appointments. And sometimes when we are recipients of that, we don't understand it until hindsight. We look back and we say, you know, I just said, what a coincidence. Oh, I'm happy that happened. But you look back and say, God was totally in that. Am I ever thankful that God divinely appoints interactions among people? Sometimes you're recipients of that. But what I really want to encourage you with is, Sometimes, without your knowing, God used you to be a divine appointment for someone else. And he has an amazing story in their life that's unfolding, and you have no idea the significant part you played just by pointing someone in the right direction, just by being good, just by loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And you look at your life and say, yeah, I don't know if there's anything really exciting in my life. And God says, oh, if only you knew how often I just use your faithful living with me to bless others. Be prepared to be a divine appointment. You don't plan that, you get prepared for it. And you prepare for it by starting every day and saying, Lord, I want you to be glorified in my life today. And I ask you to use me to bless others however you desire. That's the posture of someone who could be of use to God. And uh, so I just find it very interesting and encouraging that that man was used by God. So then we find out that the brothers really want to kill Joseph. The only two brothers that are mentioned by name are Reuben. Reuben says, no, let's not kill him. We're kind of told later on that that's because when Joseph was put in the pit, his plan was to come back later on to take him out of the pit, bring him back to his dad, and hopefully rebuild some favor with his father because he'd really messed up many times, I'm sure. And he wanted to rebuild some favor. Whether that was good intention or evil, we're not told. But that was when we hear of Reuben. The only other person we hear by name is Judah. And Judah providentially says, hey guys, they see the caravan coming, Ishmaelites, Midianites. These would be like second and third cousins of them. They probably don't know who they are. There's lots of people, but in, in the history line, these would be cl fairly close relatives of theirs. He says, look, here's, here's these traitors. Instead of killing them, why don't we make some profit out of it? Why don't we sell them for like 20 shekels, about two years worth of a common shepherd's wages? Why don't we sell them? And then blood's not really on our hands. It's doing what we want. He's out but no blood on our hands. And so Judah says that, and he persuades his brothers they agree to do that. You're going to be learning more about Judah in the weeks ahead as we go through the rest of Genesis, and we need to remember, again, this story, these next 14 chapters, although Joseph is the main character, 
there's lots happening that's advancing the promise to Abraham and Judah is hugely significant because eventually it's through his line that Jesus will be born. Not through Joseph, it's gonna be through Judah. And we are gonna read some uh, next chapter, chapter 38. I'm gonna ask you to read that before next Sunday at home. Read it on your own, read about this man Judah and go, God can use someone like him? Yep, he can. He can even make Jesus come through his lineage. There is no one that God can't use if people are open to it. And, and there is a story of redemption in Judah's life, which is beautiful to see in Genesis. So here, Judah's uh, persuasion of his brothers makes something providential happen. So they take him out of the pit and they sell him to the traders. And the reason that's really important is that these traders were going down to Egypt. So now again, remember, the brothers were supposed to be near Shechem, they weren't there. Providentially, they had gone to Dothan. Dothan is the major trade route down to Egypt. Why is that important? Tell you right away. The other thing that was supposed to happen is Joseph was supposed to find his brothers, but he got redirected to go find them in Dothan. Now, he's sold to slave traders going down to Egypt. Genesis 15. I don't know if you can remember this far back, but you can read in the Bible. Genesis 15 is, is part of where the promise to Abraham is reiterated. And it start, starts talking about how you will have your descendants, again, the many descendants, the promised land. But then the Bible says in verses 13 to 14, it says, the Lord said to Abraham, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. So 200 years earlier, God makes a promise to Abraham. And part of that promise has a prophecy that your people are gonna be slaves for 400 years in Egypt. 200 years has passed. Do you wonder if people wondered does God know what he's talking about? And then through all these circumstances that just seem to be evil upon evil, God uses it to take the first step to see that actually take place. Joseph goes to Egypt. And as we see later on in Genesis, it has the whole family move down there eventually. It's so amazing to get to know God through his word. It's so rich to learn about the character of God and what he's able to do. God is providential. After he's sold into slavery, the next little vignette in chapter 37 is about Jacob mourning. And it could have just ended there, and we could have just thought, well, I guess Joseph is out of the picture. His story's done. He's as good as dead. He's sold as a slave. But the last verse says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. God gives us just enough hope and an intrigue to say maybe he's not done with Joseph yet. The next chapter, chapter 38, doesn't mention Joseph at all. It's all about Judah. If it wasn't for that little verse, you wouldn't have that hope, that anticipation that God still has something planned for someone who was treated so, so poorly 
and who was suffering for being favored. In my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many people when you read Genesis, that, that the life of Christ is just evident throughout him. I'd say in Genesis, at least, Joseph is the, is the best example of the life of Christ as a foreshadowing of a Savior who would come. In the Old Testament, the only other person in, in my thought life who, who comes close to that is David, a man after God's own heart. But by God's grace, we hear a lot of the wrong things that David did that he was forgiven for. But Joseph, again, there's nothing negative ever said about him. It doesn't mean that he didn't do wrong, but it's, it means that in this narrative for the purpose of scripture he's a foreshadowing of christ and in many different ways but in this chapter i think especially he could be seen as the suffering servant the the one who suffered for doing nothing wrong and isn't that exactly what the bible tells us about god hebrews 5 verse 8 says although he although jesus was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now that certainly doesn't mean that God was, Jesus had been disobedient so he had to learn obedience. It means that he learned more fully about the nature of a life with his father the more he suffered and he trusted his father to be sovereign and good and providential. And Joseph was on that trajectory. Here's someone who's Starts, looks so good. Here's the coat, here's the dreams, and then boom, literally into a pit. Literally sold into slavery and left for dead. And God says, I'm not finished with you yet, Joseph. Not just for your sake, but for the sake of all people. I don't know where everybody's at today and your experience of what you're suffering. There's suffering that's just in the world because sin exists. But then there's suffering that happens because we're lights in darkness. That's what the Bible says we should expect to happen, that when we live as light in darkness, there should be some reaction that isn't always positive. Because for some, the fragrance of Christ is life, and to others, the fragrance of Christ is death. And my role is just to submit to Christ and say, Holy Spirit, use me for your glory however you wish. Help me not to hinder you. And when suffering comes, help me to have faith in you because I know you are completely faithful. And I know that I am favored by you. And that favor is intent intended to bring salvation to others. For each one of us who has our life grounded in Christ and has the Holy Spirit living in you, please hear today that you are favored by God. And we are living in the day of salvation. And we have the beautiful privilege of being pictures of hope to people while we're suffering. And even in our suffering, that people can say, Look what God is doing. I don't know how this story ends. I don't know if there's going to be resolved this side of heaven, but I can have faith. Look at how that person is trusting God when there's no evident reason for them to have to. We have such a great God, and he wants you to grow closer to him whenever you suffer. Let me close this in prayer, and I'll ask the worship team to come up and, and lead us in a final song.
Lord, we are so privileged to be your children. We don't even comprehend nearly the glory we have in you because of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the reality of the Holy Spirit in us. Lord, when we suffer, help us to trust you. Help us to know that in all circumstances, you can bring good out of evil happenings. You can advance the message of Jesus Christ so that people might come to know you and not be lost for eternity. Lord, open our eyes to you when we feel lost or blind. Thank you for the example of Joseph. Thank you most of all for clearly showing that you are sovereign and that you are good. We love you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to live faithfully with you and each other as well. For the sake of Christ, amen. I invite you to stand and join us. 